Hey everyone, I hope you all are doing well. Um, if you were at the service on Sunday, you probably know that we had a couple uh, loud cracks in the middle of the service. Uh, we have a new soundboard that we were testing out, and unfortunately we lost the entire recording of the sermon in the process. So this is actually a re-recording of Sunday's message uh, from June 20th on Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Uh, and so I want to re-record this message for you all, especially if you haven't had a chance to listen to this yet. Um, and so hope you enjoy this morning's message. Uh, this morning, again, we will be, uh, as we did on Sunday, looking at Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. And as way of an introduction, for the past uh, few weeks now, we've actually been seeing the church experience persecution at this point in the book of Acts with scarce to little relief along the way. But here... In Acts chapter 9, at the beginning of this passage, we're about to see the winter cold be driven out and driven away, as it were, by summer's heat. Why? Well, because Saul of Tarsus here, who was, as the Puritans called him, once an illicit persecutor of the gospel of Christ, will forever here be transformed into an illustrious professor of the gospel of Christ. And as such, we will see above all else this centralized theme that salvation is a gracious act of God. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to the reading of God's word as it is here before us in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. The word of God says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Friends, this is the word of God. It is given to us in love. It is forever faithful and true. Let's go ahead and pray before we dive into the text this morning in more detail. Father, we thank you that you are the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you, Father, that you are in the business of saving sinners unto yourself, redeeming us from the life of the pit, healing us, restoring us in uprightness before you. And all of this through and by and for the glory of Christ Jesus, our Savior. We pray that he would be front and central in this time as always, and that the Holy Spirit would continue to use this time to prick our hearts and point us to Christ. So we pray all this in your holy name, our good and gracious King. Amen. Well, friends, again, our theme this morning is that salvation is a gracious act of God. And to help us process this truth, I'd like to go ahead and subdivide our text, uh, naturally, of course, into two parts. Uh, Verses 1 through 9, that first paragraph that you might see in front of you, and then verses 10 through 19. Now, in the first part, we will see how salvation itself confronts our sin. But in the second part, we will see how salvation not only confronts our sin, but actually leads us out of our sin. So let's go ahead and dive in. But before we get around to the message itself regarding salvation come to Saul, I think it's important for us to paint a picture of the context here. For even chapter 9 goes into the context regarding the church itself. See, the church in view here in Acts 9, especially the first few verses here, is described by two key distinctions. First, that they were disciples of the Lord Jesus, but secondly, that they were also those who belonged to the way. And they even took that name, the way, upon themselves. First, though, again, they were disciples. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that they were lifelong learners of Jesus Christ. Lifelong learners of the gospel, meaning that they sought to constantly grow in the joy of knowing Christ, but also knowing how the gospel applied to all of the facets of their life. But again, they were also members of the way. In other words, they belonged mind, body, and soul to Christ Jesus, their faithful Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. And so they apparently referred to themselves collectively as the Way, capital W, Way. And this implies two further things. First, that they belonged to Jesus, who again called himself the Way in John chapter 14, verse 6, but also that they were on their way home. These men and women and children alike saw themselves as sojourners, nomads, wanderers vagabonds. They, of course, had been spiritual exiles before being found by Christ and his salvation, 
But here now, especially at this time in church history, as we see them in Acts 9, they were also physical exiles, physically exiled in the midst of the great persecution that had been going on the last few chapters now. They had been dispersed throughout Judea and Samaria, maybe even further at this point. And so they knew themselves to be in the world, but not of the world. And so they lived the church, that is, as those in light of the glory land still to come, suffering for the advancement of the gospel, yet resilient all the more in their hope in the Lord. Friends, like these brave men and women, persecution makes us also long for Christ all the more. And as we experience his grace and his goodness, we are made to long for his glorious return. But enter Saul of Tarsus at this point. See, immediately in Acts 9 verse 1, we see Saul as still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now in Acts 7, we had seen Saul present and even approving of Stephen the deacon's unjust murder. But here in Acts uh, 9, we see the events of his ravaging the church continue to progress and become uncontrolled even at this point. See, now he is seen as one who was preparing himself for his next unholy crusade against the body of Christ. So who was this Saul exactly at this moment in time? Well, thankfully, he is perhaps the most well-known person outside of Christ in all of the New Testament. And Scripture through much of his own writings as well, of course, accentuates his credentials. And it does so in order to prove the validity of his conversion that we just read about a moment ago. See, Saul himself was from Tarsus. Tarsus was a well-known affluent city within the Roman jurisdiction. Think of a giant metropolis like Boston, Massachusetts, or Seattle, Washington, or Virginia Beach. Furthermore, though, Saul was born not only in a, an affluent town, but also of two Hebrew parents, a mother and father who were both Hebrew themselves. So he considered himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, if you will. He prided himself in being born of the tribe of Benjamin, which adhered to Judah. And Saul himself was a zealous learner, steeped in the education of the Athenian traditions of Greek poetry and Greek philosophy alike. He would have been that student that everyone envied and probably even uh, despised a little bit because he would just seem to be destined for the Harvard or the Yale of his own age. And so, growing into manhood, he entered into further studies and became a seminarian of all things, delving into matters of divinity and Jewish law. And it was probably around this same time of life that Gamaliel took express interest in mentoring Saul. This was that same Gamaliel that we had seen earlier in Acts chapter 6 and 7, who was perhaps the most well-known and well-respected of all the Pharisees, and who himself was the grandson of Hillel, Hillel who was the founding father of Pharisaism. And so Saul, all this to say, was essentially the poster child, the rising all-star of all of Judaism. And yet we read something curious about Saul here. In the midst of his zeal and his knowledge, 
He was a bloodthirsty man. About a year after Christ's death and resurrection from the dead and ascension on high to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, Saul wanted nothing more than to destroy the church. See, in his mind, the followers of Christ were the scum of the earth. The followers of Jesus were, in Saul's mind, in need of extermination, like a whole slew of ants that just go to work in your backyard and start messing up the way things look and how you want them to be. Well, Acts 9 verse 1 says that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. What this means is that his persecution of the children of God was as persistent as breathing. It was untamable. John Calvin, in his own commentary on Acts 9, calls this behavior beast-like, a base from all sound reasoning. Saul, of course, then had zeal, yes, but it was without true knowledge of God. So he even went so far as to find written explicit permission from the high priest in order to put an end to the church. Such was his zeal without knowledge. And sadly so, and this shows how twisted the high priest was even here, presently. The high priest apparently found this idea to persecute the Christians in Damascus and implicitly even beyond, to be favorable. And so he gave him letters to show that he could indeed go into the synagogues within Damascus, but again, inferentially speaking, to the rest of the known world over which the high priest had jurisdiction over all of Judaism as the religion. And Saul was then granted the right to go in and remove men and even women from their congregations, bind them, take them to Jerusalem, and, to put it kindly, put an end to their lives. But see, at the core of Saul's actions, even his zealous actions at that, laid misconstrued intentions. See, he thought he was doing all of this for God. What a tragedy. Church, this is the ugly truth about sin. Sin not only turns us into relentless, untamable beasts like it did Saul, it distorts our view of God and all of his perfection and holiness. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 tell us as much. The word of God in Ephesians 2 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, each one of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Friends, this should give each one of us serious pause for consideration in regard to our own sins. Especially when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins specifically, by name, and makes them knowledgeable to us. See, so left apart from God's 
divine intervention. Our sin, each and every single one of them, will indeed seek to destroy us. And as Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 1, temptations to sin are sure to come. Yes, meaning they are common, but woe to the one through whom they come. As the Presbyterian pastor Matthew Henry once said, to paraphrase Jesus' words here, leaders in sin are the worst of sinners. In other words, those who indulge in sin and so lead others in mimicking their own folly have it coming for them. This is why the church must always view itself in contrast to the waywardness of the world and never as a friend to wickedness. We know this truth from Psalm 1 and so many other passages of Scripture alike. Why, though? Because any sin, but especially the sin that comes from leaders and the sins that arise from our culture and are accepted even as such, are sins that we often become blind to and we just blindly accept. And yet each one of them have an adverse effect upon the church. As such, we should be reasonably guarded whenever sin is given free reign over our culture. Especially when sin is, just dare I say, pronounced as being, quote-unquote, good for our communities, or something to take pride in. These statements might sound familiar to us, for in this very month, we often see sin being paraded as such good for us, things to take pride in. And what is evil is pronounced as being good. But we must be aware of such deception, friends. For sin always kills. It is always out to get you. Such is the unchanging nature of sin. And so it is our duty as believers, not only as believers though, but as members of the body of Christ here in our own town of Culpeper and beyond, to warn others of the danger of sin, but to do it with the sincerest form of love from the heart for their welfare. And may we always speak the truth in love from a place of a mind and a heart for God himself. See, in our own day and age, when we see the pervasiveness of sin in the lives of our loved ones, my prayer for us is that we would be characterized not by acceptance, as the culture has twisted that word to mean, acceptance of sin, but rather by patience, enduring, loving patience, true tolerance, as it's historically always been defined, is marked by a kind of genuine 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. And true tolerance or patience in regard to sin, patience even in warning others against the danger and the follies of it, it all echoes God's kindness that by nature leads us toward repentance. But it's not upon us to do the work of God, is it? 
human effort alone, even our own best efforts in our own communities alone can never change the hearts of men. Legislation can't do it, never mind our own efforts in a personal way. Without the gracious intervention of God, there is indeed no hope for us, let alone our own culture or our town. For we ourselves cannot ever unsink the Titanic of our lives. If we try to resort to behavior modification, we'll merely end up rearranging or furnishing the Titanic of our souls rather than seeking safety and salvation from the one who alone can lift the Titanic up from the depths of the ocean. But praise God that he is in the business of showing big mercy, full, sympathetic love and compassion through Christ, Christ who suffered the weight of sin upon, us, upon the cross for us. The same Christ is the one who met Saul. Saul, on the road to Damascus, seeking to destroy the church, this same Saul was going to Damascus en route to destroy the people of God. And yet note the kindness and the mercy of Christ. See, Saul, in the midst of his blatant zeal for destroying the church, probably assumed that the town of Damascus would be an easy first target. Damascus had been known prior as being harsh toward the children of God in ages past. And so he assumed, probably so, that the synagogues there would be not only an easy target, but that they might even readily hand over the believers amongst the Jewish mix. But while he was still en route with his own companions, the sound of horse hoofs clip-clopping, clip-clopping in the background, he was met with the blinding, literally blinding light of Christ. In an instant, Saul fell to the ground, biting the dust, actually humbled to the earth. As it says in the Greek, to the lowest of the low, the earth itself. The text here in verse 4 states that light shone all around him in this moment. The light of Christ, Christ in all of his glory. And he heard a voice call him by name, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Twice over, the Lord Jesus said his name in earnestness, coming from a place of seeking to awaken him from his mad stupor against God. But notice not just what Jesus said to Saul in this moment. Notice how Jesus called out to Saul. Jesus used a question to pull him out of his deep, dark sin. Just like the Lord God sobered up Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, so he called out to Saul here with a heart-wrenching question. Why? Why? Dumbfounded, though, at this why are you persecuting me question, Saul cried out, Who are you, sir? And Christ answered, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Note again how Christ said this twice over. 
Notice also, though, however, that Jesus equated Saul's persecution of the church, his body, with the persecution of him, the head of the body. This is a beautiful gospel truth right before us. Because how Christ views the body is from a place of love and tenderness. And so when we, like Saul, hurt the body of Christ, we are so also doing that against Christ himself. How we interact with the body of Christ says everything about how we view Jesus, the head. And this, my friends, is indeed convicting. For is there even one of us who has not hurt the body of Christ and in effect hurt Christ as such? But friends, I want us to see Christ's tender care for you here, friends that he would rush to your defense as he did for the church there in Acts 9. See, throughout the Gospels, we never see Jesus speak so much in his own defense as he did here for the welfare of his own body, the church. Though Christ suffered indeed at the hands of sinners, he willingly suffered for you in your place. So rest then in the tender mercies of God in not giving us what we deserve, even when we hurt his body, the church. How can it be? How can it be that Christ would indeed show such mercy toward us sinners, sinners who not only hurt the body, but hurt him? Well, in God's mercy, Saul himself was shown such glorious gospel truths here in this moment. Saul was made, even in the midst of his darkest rebellion against Christ, to experience the light of Christ. A spotlight shone all around him. A spotlight of sorts that was brighter than the blazing hot summer sun. And as such, Saul trembled before the glories of a king forever made aware of his own unworthiness. For ironically enough, unworthiness itself is the lot of all of those who are called and employed by God. So at Jesus' command, he employed Saul. And he told him to go on and continue on to Damascus. Of course, for a different purpose, though. A different purpose that he would reveal to him within a matter of days. I can imagine that Saul was so sickened in his soul at this point by his own sin that because of that, he was unable to eat or even drink. It was a miraculous thing that Christ, by his own mercies, sustained Saul, even humanly speaking, in his soul and in his body because Saul went without food or even water for three days. But it was during this time that Saul threw himself upon the mercy of God in prayer ceaselessly. Like the publican from the Gospel of Luke, who cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So Saul, who was seemingly righteous in his own sight at first, now saw his depravity for what it was. 
And so friends, this leads us to our second point for the morning. And this point will be uh, much shorter, admittedly so, um, for I want to be more of a point of application rather than focusing so much upon the exposition of the text itself. And so glancing over verses 10 through 19, we'll see here as Christ in his sovereignty brought a man named Ananias to Saul, that salvation itself doesn't just confront our sin, but God's salvation leads us out of our sin, in tangible ways even. See, the nature of sin is that it runs so deep within the core of our being. Again, sin is more than just a behavior. And so uprooting sin requires more than just plucking the weeds that surface above the earth, things that are visible to us. Rather, sin must be killed at the root level, and as such, uprooted by the God who made us. To use another illustration, sin is much like a beach ball. Uh, For those of you who are kids who are listening in, I can imagine that during this summer, especially when we just had the hottest day of the summer just yesterday, hitting 95 degrees, that you probably enjoy going out to the pool as well. And sin itself is like a beach ball. And next time you go out to the pool, I would encourage you to think of it like this. That if you were to try to take the beach ball and push it below the surface of the water, you know what will happen, of course, right? It'll come bouncing right back up. You can't push sin down. It always finds its way back up, splashing everything around it, and probably hitting yourself in the face along the way. Maybe speaking from a personal experience there. Rather, sin itself, like a beach ball that must be thrown away, needs to be picked up out of the water first, deflated, and then thrown away. And only one who is capable of such divine disposal can do this. God alone. For sin is a personal affront to God. And as such, he alone can deal with it. So here in verses 10 through 19, we see how the Lord personally dealt with Saul's sin and graciously led him out of his sin, out of his bondage, and how he used even another believer to come in and speak into the brokenness of Saul over his own sin. Here in this last half of our passage in Acts 9, we see that even the gospel itself was proclaimed to Saul through not only the proclamation of it via the word, but through the sacrament of baptism later on. But what happened here if we take a step back? Well, here in the context, we see in a vision that the Lord commanded Ananias. He came to him saying, go to Saul. Go to Saul there in the midst of his distress and bring recovery of his sight. Now, when Ananias, of course, heard of Saul's reign of terror prior to this, uh, he couldn't help but be shocked in the moment. And so we see him resist the word of God. Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
In other words, he knew, he heard the report of Saul, how deep and dark Saul's sin was, and he was fearful of it. And yet God kindly answered him with these words. Saul is a chosen, or literally elect, instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Wow. Praise God for his gracious understanding of us as he did Saul and Ananias in our own moments of doubt. He dealt so patiently with Ananias here. Ananias, who was feeling the dread within his own soul at just even the thought of appearing before Saul. And rightfully so, of course. But see, if Ananias had his own way, he would have easily pulled a Jonah, so to speak, in a matter of a heartbeat and booked it for his own version of Tarshish. Again, he had surely heard of the murderous mission of Saul, of Tarsus, from others. But God in this moment lovingly and patiently overcame Ananias' fear with a humbling assurance. What was the assurance? It was that Saul was God's instrument. Quite literally, an instrument of mercy in the Redeemer's hands, as the pastor Paul Tripp likes to put it. And furthermore, Paul, or rather Saul at this point, was praying. He was praying. Meaning that in the midst of Saul's distress, God heard. And even Saul's prayers, prayers for mercy, prayers of conviction, were precious in God's sight. Of course, a whole other message could be given just in regard to that alone. But see, it was during these three days of deep, heartfelt conviction that Saul was in many ways like Jonah in the belly of the great fish, made acquaintly knowledgeable of his own sin. He was made humble in his posture before God, literally made blind, unable to see, until Ananias would come and restore his vision. And yet in God's providence, he promised to Saul that Ananias, specifically by name, would come to meet him, and carry forth his purpose. And so Saul was being made ready in this three-day journey of the soul to receive the grace of God in Christ and to be so irresistibly drawn to Christ and to be made affectionate for him the rest of his life. This three-day journey of the soul was so pivotal. Friends, like Saul, the calling out of our own sins is deeply personal. But so is our being led out of them. For the restorative act of God always comes by way of the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who guides us carefully, yet diligently, into all truth. I always love being reminded of this quote by the late pastor Robert Murray McShane, who told his congregation this, for every one look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. For friends, after all, who 
else is altogether lovely and able to deliver us from sin. How else but by the passage of Christ redeeming grace then applied to us can we even be made to lovingly adore him? And conversely, for those of us who desire to adore Christ rightly by walking in the light of his glories and forgiveness, how can we continue to do so if we go on plunging ourselves into the dark shadows of sin? Again, behavior modification itself cannot be the answer. Only the external act of divine intervention can perform in us the surgery of the soul, the good work that God desires for us. This is why the scriptures say in Ephesians 5 verse 14, Awake, O sleeper, awake, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so if we seek to live unto the glory of God and so enjoy him daily, we must understand what the will of God for us is. And what is that? His will for us is to become obedient to Christ, to his holy law. We must not live foolishly then with loose lips and injurious hearts toward others. We must be guarded by God. We must take every thought captive unto the Lordship of Christ. We must look carefully then how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, for the days are evil. They are filled with temptations. And friends, nothing but the grace of God realized, not just mentally, but in our heart of hearts, will permit us this posture and this desire to be so obedient to Christ. For we are all truly like Saul in our own hearts. We are a base in our minds against the things of God. We were by children, by nature rather, children of wrath, apart from the sheer breakthrough that God's mercy in Christ provided for us. But knowing our depravity, I want to remind us as well of the gospel. See, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Specifically, the law's crippling power so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. Praise God then for his transformative grace in our lives. Well, friends, this brings us to our conclusion. And as we conclude, I, I want to put a personal question out before each one of us. Something to chew on the rest of the week. See, with all this talk of sin against God, what is the specific sin the Holy Spirit has brought to your mind throughout this time? See, I'm convinced that whenever we talk about sin in general terms, and we think about how it affects us, each one of us is probably in the moment thinking of something specific that we know we wrestle with. And so, friends, are you willing to see that sin for what it is in this moment? If so, the light of Christ is ready to shine upon not only it to expose it, but so that we might confess it and confess Christ 
as the Savior from that sin specifically. See, Christ indeed is your shepherd if your trust is in him. And he is ready to love on your soul well by doing something similar to what he did for Saul. By bringing others like Ananias around you to walk with you in wisdom and in love through your sin as God pulls you out of it. Finally, if you are a believer in Christ, my encouragement to you is to continue then to live under the exposing light of Christ. For the light of Christ is always purposed for your soul's good whenever it shines upon you. And if you are not yet a believer in Christ, know that salvation is here and is freely offered to you this day. So knowing this, let's come before the light of his grace in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are the one who is marked by tender mercies and that your mercies are new every day. We thank you, Lord, that though we sin from the heart against your own heart, daily, moment by moment, none of this is a surprise to you. And so we thank you that you persevere for us. We thank you that you preserve us and hold us fast till the end, so patiently dealing with our sin and loving us, both sinners who are simultaneously justified by our faith in Christ. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that as the word has been delivered to us, we would own it in our heart of hearts and be captivated by it. And may we so live as those who have seen the glory of Christ going forward. So we pray all this in his holy name. Amen.